subject. Um, everybody else will be together today in the book of Psalms. If you turn with me to Psalms uh, 34, Psalms 34, and if uh, you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, there should be one, and we're on page 264 in those blue Bibles, page 264. Um, it's a little warm in here, isn't it? So early this morning, we discovered that uh, one of the two major air conditioners is out. So we're at, uh, we're at 50%. So that means half of your body can be cool, and the other half, not so much. Um, the moral of the story, though, is uh, the youth, so a big group of our youth are up in the mountains camping this weekend together. And uh, you should have gone as a sponsor, because you would have been cool then. Uh, but uh, in all seriousness, sorry, we'll have it, uh, Lord willing, resolved by next week. You get a free pass if you happen to fall asleep during this sermon. This is the only one. Uh, but uh, hopefully a few of us can uh, labor together in the text. Uh, today, we're beginning a, a short sermon series, just a couple of weeks, on uh, the church. And... Uh, instead of starting in one book of the Bible and working our way paragraph by paragraph all the way through it as we normally do, um, instead, we're going to be lifting up our eyes from one particular book in the Bible and instead trying to think about a theme that spans every book of the Bible. Over the next three weeks, we want to think together about what it means to be a church and uh, I've discovered over the years of pastoring that it's helpful just to revisit that topic again and again every year or year and a half as we tend to forget what we're all about. One of the central analogies used in the Bible for the church uh, is the human body. Our bodies are, uh, with all their problems of course, but our bodies are miraculous and so is the church. Uh, our, the human body is uh, united around a common goal to, to keep us alive. And the church is also united around a common goal to extend life. Uh, the human body has a head, and the church does too. Jesus is the head. And so in these ways and many more, the Bible talks about one way of understanding what the church is and what the church is for can be seen by considering the human body. And so we're just calling this series The Body. This morning, we want to try to work together to answer a single question. Why is it so bloody hot in here? That's not the question. The question is, why does the body of Christ exist? Why does the body of Christ exist well, there are many familiar texts in the Scriptures we could turn to in which the word church is used and there's an explicit teaching about what exactly has caused the church to come about. But most of those passages, if you've been in church for any length of time at all, you've already heard. And so what I thought we would do this morning is take a more scenic route. We'd look at a less familiar passage that directly teaches what the church is and what it's for, but only does so rather indirectly. And that's what Psalm 34 does. That's what Psalm 34 does. 
Now, everybody loves to get an invitation in the mail or online. Can you think back with me, just rhetorical, of course, but can you think back with me to the last invitation you received? Wedding, birthday party, retirement, graduation, these are all massive occasions that demand a proper celebration. And if you think back to one of those invitations that you received, that's probably what it was for, one of those events. An invitation is the most natural thing to send when there's something to celebrate. Psalm 34 is an invitation. It is, imagine opening your mailbox or your email and seeing your name followed by Psalm 34, the invitation. This is the passionate public invitation from David that consists of two parts. Uh, The first half of the psalm is David's invitation, worship with me. The second half is David's invitation, learn from me. And so what we'll do in our remaining time together is sweat and worship with me and learn from me. So would you look with me there at verse 1 of chapter 34? David writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. The opening verses of this invitation make several marvelous statements. It's easy to skim past them, but let's slow down and actually consider them. David says that he's committed to everyday praise. Think of that. David's indicating that 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, if he's awake, he's blessing the Lord. He's saying that every word that comes from his mouth about God will be words that speak well of God. They'll be words that bless God all the time. Can you imagine actually living like that? What a tremendous challenge. That our speech would often be full of saying how good God is of blessing him. That's verse 1. And then in verse 2, David indicates that he's filled with what we might call selfless enthusiasm about the Lord. If you see a beautiful sunset, or if you're a, a basketball fan and you catch an amazing buzzer beater, a team winning right at the end, or if you... See an adorable child taking her very first steps. The instinct that is hardwired inside of us in these kinds of occasions is to rejoice. And it's to rejoice selfishly. No. It's to rejoice unselfishly, right? I mean, we don't say, uh, look at that sunset I caused. Or we don't say, My daughter, isn't it amazing how I taught you how to walk? 
No, the, the occasions where we rejoice, we humbly and selfishly react to the glory of another without drawing any attention to ourselves at all. That's what David's talking about in verse 2 when he says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. This is the turning from human pride and exalting and exclaiming how good God is. And this pure joy in God leads to the most natural outcome there in verse 3. Let us exalt the Lord together. Do you see the movement there from an individual recognizing who God is to an individual realizing, I can't do this alone. I want to invite others in to come worship and praise God. David isn't advising some slick evangelism program or a slogan or a gimmick. This is the mother rejoicing over his daughter's first, her daughter's first steps and instinctively calling her husband to come watch. This is a friend out for a walk seeing a fantastic sunset and calling another friend on the phone saying, you've got to come outside and see this. This is the invitation to worship God that's bursting forth from unbridled enjoyment and gratitude in who God is. Friends, the point here, of course, is at the most basic, fundamental level, that's why the church exists. The church exists because there are people who have come to see who God is and can't help but invite others to do the same. A church is a committed united, celebratory group of Christians who joyfully gather to worship God and most naturally invite others to join in. The the church, the purpose of the church, is to gather with other Christians to worship the Lord who will in turn invite more and more and more and more and more people to do the same. There are millions of ways different local churches churches in different contexts can go about saying that. And yet at the most fundamental level, every true church, that's what it's about. The way we've put it here is that we exist to glorify God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that is by no means innovative or new or sleek. That is the old, old command given to us in the Scriptures, far older than any of us, and will be extending far beyond any of us. The mission of the church is to worship God and invite others to join in. It is that simple. It really is. Now, it might surprise you to hear a pastor ask this question. But I think it really must be asked. Why should we accept David's invitation? Why should we accept David's invitation? I mean, 
you've probably gotten an invitation or two that you weren't excited to receive. You've probably opened an email and seen the date and the invitation and thought, oh my goodness, I have got to find something else to do so I have an excuse. Why is David's invitation to worship God worth accepting? I think it's an entirely appropriate question. And one fascinating aspect of the answer to the question is what David doesn't go on to say in this particular psalm. For example, his answer is not, well, look to creation. Look at everything God's made. It shows his power, and therefore we should worship him. All of that is true, but it isn't what David says. Also, look in the psalm and see that David doesn't say, he doesn't make an an appeal, if you will, to worshiping God as the right thing to do. In other words, he doesn't go to the law. He doesn't say, you're commanded to praise God, therefore you must. Although he had every right to, and every every, uh, section, every part of the Bible does in fact say that. So he doesn't say, worship God with me because it's the right thing to do. But he does have an answer. He does have an answer to why we should praise God. And his answer for some of us is going to be really surprising. His answer is an appeal to his own experience. Now that might make some of us uncomfortable. But it is precisely what David does. He goes on in the rest of this psalm to give a personal testimony of God's praiseworthiness. Look with me at verses 4 through 7. These are David's reasons why God ought to be praised. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. And he delivered me out of all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Friends, David is recounting a profound experience that he had with God. Most of us here this morning know that we have just finished, as a congregation, six months of sermons walking through the book of 1 Samuel. And we chose this psalm as a link between these two series today because this is a reference back to something that happened to David in the book of 1 Samuel. For most of the book of 1 Samuel, David had been privately appointed as the next king of Israel, and yet there was somebody else still on the throne. And so he couldn't begin leading Israel until King Saul had died. But King Saul was a jealous, egotistical maniac. He was a man over the the arc of the story of 1 Samuel who became increasingly consumed by envy. And so for literally years, David 
was being hunted because Saul wanted to kill him. David spent years of his life on the run. And at particular times, he had no food, no friends, no shelter, no money. As a soldier, he even had no sword. And on one particular occasion, if you need a a refresher, you can look back at 1 Samuel chapter 21 later today. Things had gotten so bad that David was so fearful that he said, I'm going to leave the nation of Israel and go hide among the Philistines. But as the saying goes, that was just jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire or into this room. (laughs) Because the city David fled to was Goliath's hometown. That shows you something of the depth of David's despair and confusion. He had killed Goliath, and now he's going back to try and hide in Goliath's hometown. Predictably, the king didn't want him. That king didn't want him either, and also planned to have him killed. And so David's solution was, I can't go back to Israel. I can't stay here. They've locked me up and are going to kill me. So David's solution was to act like he lost his mind. Imagine being so afraid without any other recourse that you fictitiously act insane. This quite literally is nuts. 1 Samuel 21 actually says that David pretended by letting drool run down his face and drip off his beard. I'll demonstrate for you after the gathering if you'd like. Now, fascinatingly, it worked. The king let him go, thinking he wasn't worth bothering to kill. And looking back on that experience later, David didn't see his quick wit as what got him out of this great peril. No, he saw God's kind intervention. He saw that God saved him. And so, apparently, as he sort of moaned and droned and drooled on the outside, on the inside, he was begging and pleading with God to do something to save him. He knew he had nowhere else to turn. And later, as he was away in some measure of safety, he sat down and he penned Psalm 34. Psalm 34's reason for worshiping God is that David had experienced, not not read about, not heard about, David had personally experienced the help and deliverance of God. David is saying, the Lord is a faithful deliverer, provider, and protector. And anyone who would hear me, if you would worship God, you will find his help too. Brothers and sisters, we've not been delivered from King Saul today. 
But never forget that our deliverance out of slavery to sin is far greater than being rescued out of Saul's hand. Colossians 1 says it this way, He, this is Jesus, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us in the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Brother or sister, think of who you were. Think of the mess you'd made of your life. Think of the consequences of being rightfully under the wrath of a holy God. And think of who you now are. Not because of your ingenuity or your wisdom, but because of the grace of God as you cried out to Him for help in Christ. Experiencing God's rescue leads to pleading with others to come to know and trust God too. And this is what the church is for. We're not here merely to say, come read a book about Him. Come hear about Him. Yes, we do that. But we're also here to say, come experience Him. Come get to know Him personally. The rest of the psalm goes on in verses 8 to 10 to describe that experience with palpable words. It says in verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Friends, the church is a group of committed Christians sharing that invitation. Come, taste, see that God is good. He is the saving, grace-giving, kind God of the universe. You see, friend, before the church is a place or a certain number of people or connected to a denomination or some musical style of worship, the church is a rescued people worshiping God and joyfully imploring others to do so too. By grace, we've found, we've tasted, we've experienced that God is good. And so our driving motivation is to share that experience with others, to invite them to come to find that to be true as well. As the news of Jesus spreads and people take up this invitation to taste and see, what's going to happen? Well, friend, they'll find God to be able to deliver on His promises. And then because they find God to be able to deliver on those promises, they will desire to become a part of a church family. And more people joining in will inevitably mean that each of us need to be flexible and put this invitation ahead of our own desires. 
as we move into another fall of ministry as a church body, may we have this David-like passion for sharing God. And may we have a David-like willingness to set aside our own personal preferences. May the focus of our life together not be on keeping everything the way it's always been. May it not be on being comfortable and knowing every single person here. May it be on extending the invitation. Come worship the Lord with me. For I personally, we collectively, have found him to be the deliverer, the provider, and the protector. And friend, if God does rescue more and more people, which is absolutely what he's up to in the world, if God does save more people from sin and welcome them into a life-giving relationship with Jesus, then there's the need, of course, to show them how to live the Christian life. To show them that after you taste and see that God is good, which incidentally Peter, in the book of First Peter, quotes that verse and says that, that is what it means to come to know Christ, to be in a relationship with God. If that happens, then there's the need to gather as we worship God and then to instruct one another in how to live the Christian life. And fascinatingly, that's what the rest of the psalm is about. The first invitation is, come worship God with me. And the rest of the psalm essentially says, now that you're a worshiper of God, come learn from me how to live out a life of faith. And you've done amazingly well. Only a few of you are, are nodding off in the heat. So would you, would you hang with me a few more minutes and let, let me briefly show you the second half of the psalm. You see, starting in verse 11, David serves as a loving, wise, helpful father would. And he sort of pulls us aside and gives us wisdom on what it means to grow up in the Lord. And we'll read it in just a second. But he says something right in the beginning of verse 11 that immediately needs explanation. And let me try to explain it and then read it so that you'll actually hear what I read instead of just thinking about the explanation needed. In verse 11, there's a phrase. It says, I will teach you to fear the Lord. A friend, if you were giving an invitation, come worship God with me, and then the very next thing you decide to instruct someone on, the very first thing, actually, would that be come, and I'm going to teach you how to be afraid. My guess is hardly any of us would go there. That we wouldn't think of the fundamental, most basic discipleship tool as teaching each other to rightly fear God. That's not our go-to today. And yet that's exactly what David did. That's the first thing on his mind about how to grow up in relationship with God. Now, while that, while that might feel initially confusing, understand that according to the Bible, fear 
is everywhere. That, in fact, to be a human being means you will be a person caught up in some kind of fear. You cannot unfear. Fear motivates so many of the decisions we make every single day. There's the fear of failure. There's the fear of not being liked. There's the fear of being left alone for the rest of your life. There's the fear of not being able to pay your bills or the fear of being found out or the fear of your kids getting hurt when they're little or as they get older, the fear that they would reject God. Brothers and sisters, fears are everywhere. And the only way to trump these little fears is with a far greater and more appropriate fear, the fear of God. You see, fearing God is having a proper reverence for who He is. The fear of God is seeing Him as supreme. The fear of God is living with an awe over who He is. And in Psalm 34, that fear doesn't show itself mainly as an attitude, but as an action. In other words, there's a way to know if you're actually living in the fear of God. It doesn't have to be this nebulous, spiritual, I can't see it and I'm not really sure if I've got it. No, you can actually know because it's readily observable. Now with that as an explanation, let's read verses 11 to 14. David says, come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life, who loves many days, that he may see good? Keep his tongue from evil. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Brothers and sisters, don't miss the marvel of what's articulated in these verses. This is an aspect of the miracle of what it means to live as a follower of God. You see, A life lived fearing God shows itself not by cowering in fear and hiding in a corner. That's not not the fear of God. The fear of God doesn't render us cowards, unable to get up and do anything with our lives. The fear of God is treating people well. It's using our tongues to bless. It's telling the truth. It's aiming to be peacemakers. The fear of God shows itself in right action toward each other. Revering God is not only something we do in this room. It's how we relate to one another every moment of every day. So if you want to see to what degree am I living as a person with a right reverence of God, you don't have to 
look for some mystical thing. You merely have to look around at your relationships. Fear of God involves obedience by loving people as Christ has loved us. Trusting God's goodness necessarily results in living lives of godliness displayed in kindness to fellow human beings and particularly to fellow church members. Friends, it's it's an awareness that God cares, that He hears, that He sees, that He will set things right, that He's committed to His people that drives this kind of obedient love. It turns out the fear of God is immensely observable and practical. As we see God for who He is, as we experience His grace personally, as we begin to look away from self-worship to the worship of God, then we become more and more and more human in our interactions with each other. The rest of the psalm helps us understand this love. We read starting in verse 15, the the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and he hears their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of all them. He keeps all His bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now make no mistake, as we seek to live these lives of love in a fallen world, we will face trial. Psalm 34 does not promise that all worldly hardships will be over if we merely pray to God and ask him to take them away. It does reference followers of God as those crushed. To be crushed means something heavy had to fall on you. Verse 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Church, the promise of the gospel is not the absence of human affliction. But there is a promise here. The promise is one of ultimate resolution to all our afflictions. Now, we may indeed experience deliverance out of some of them in this life, just like David did. And so we ought to pray when we're in trial that God would take it. And yet the promise does have a forward-looking hopefulness. Verse 20 is the verse in the chapter that seems so out of place. After David has said, Believers will be crushed. He makes this rather obscure reference to not one bone being broken. And friend, in a way that maybe David didn't even fully comprehend, 
He was prophetically looking forward to Jesus. For in the Gospels, that verse is quoted as a reference to why, as Jesus hung on the cross, his bones were not broken. God preserved him even as he was dying. God caused him to be protected in such a way that this served as a sign that God was watching over him. And so as Jesus died on the cross for sins, he was not broken. Three days later, God redeemed Jesus by raising him from the dead so that all who turn from their sin and turn to him in worship will find him a sufficient rescuer. This message that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a gospel available to all. This message is the cry of this church family. It is the news that if you will come and taste and see that Jesus Christ is good, you will be rescued in the end out of all of your troubles and out of some of them now. The Lord is the faithful deliverer, provider, and protector. And so the invitation is, let's worship, experience, and obey him together. And let's do so not myopically, as though there are not more people around us. Friend, in just a minute, you're, you're going to get up and visit for a few minutes and then go out those doors. And while you may be shocked that it's a little cooler out there, you won't be shocked to find person after person after person as you go through the rest of your day, the majority of whom have never actually heard this invitation. May we be a church so burdened by that fact that we share it generously with any who would hear. This fearful obedience will mean that we are a community of light a family showing love to one another and extending the invitation to all who will hear. This, Church on Mill, is why we exist. And it is this great invitation that I implore you to share. Let's pray. Father, thank you for friends who have labored in an incredibly uncomfortable environment this morning. Thank you for the generosity they have extended in that way. I pray, Lord, if there's not, if there are people here today who have not yet tasted and seen that you are good, that even now you would open their eyes that they might see the reality of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected as their only hope. I pray even now they would turn from sin and trust in you. And that then, God, they would not live in fear of man, but that they would get up in a moment and tell someone around them what's just happened. And Lord, for those of us in the room who call this our church, this, who are members here, this is our church family, God, I pray that in a supernatural way that far exceeds our expectations, you would renew this 
hope of the gospel in us. And we would boldly share the invitation. We would invite others to come worship God with us here at Church on Mill. We ask you, Lord, that you would fill this room with worshipers. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.